Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode 12 of the Antarctica series, which will come out every Thursday, just until I run out of episodes, which will be in February. So today's episode features Dr. Falk Hutman. He's a wildlife biologist and a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He does a lot of polar research and he introduces me to the concept of three poles, which would be the Arctic or the North Pole, the Antarctic or the South Pole, and the Himalayas. I found this to be really interesting because I'd never heard of it, but it's also based on large concentrations of ice, which you find in all three of those places. So that was cool. So in this episode, we cover a lot of ground, talking about Antarctica issues, including research, tourism, wildlife. We talk about governance of Antarctica and the treaty. We talk about what international polar years are and why they're valuable um, and about other types of scientific years. Basically, we have a wide ranging conversation about science and wildlife and polar research, climate change, natural versus political boundaries and all of these things. All right, so that's enough intro from me and rambling. You can find links to things in the show notes and enjoy the episode. I was looking at your lab's page and uh, my background is actually in wildlife as well, but oh, more really? like, yeah, hands-on bird surveys type wildlife, less of the modeling GIS type wildlife. Yeah, the issue with the websites always is it takes a lot of, of maintenance and our institute doesn't, doesn't do much of it. So um, what is out there on the internet um, is usually, uh, at least on the faculty side, is only a fraction of the work we really do. Uh, much of the Antarctic work is, is probably not in there, uh, including a lot of the tropic work I do as well. Um, Bird-wise, yeah, uh, we do a lot of bird surveys, of course, uh, marine, uh, but also terrestrial. <clears throat> and then I deal a lot with statistical issues of detectability and forecasting and prediction. Mm. Um, and with that, we deal with the data, so. Sounds like quite a lot. Keep you, keep you all very busy, <laughs> I would think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So I'm here in, in Alaska and Alaska obviously is close to the North Pole. And we realize with climate change that um, ice matters and snow matters and glaciers matter and associated oceans and lands. And so with that, uh, I established many years ago um, as part of the International Polar Year, um, a program or like a research focus that deals with the three poles. So that's the Arctic, Antarctic and Himalaya. And the reason is that these are the three areas in the world where you find most of the ice. And so from a climate perspective, these three poles are really essential. And, and it doesn't really matter if you uh, deal with the Arctic or with the Himalaya ice or with the Antarctic ice because they're all ice. <laughs> um, of course, Antarctica has most of the ice in the world. It's uh, over 70%. Um, it's it's a really the key driver, really, in global uh, balance of heat, mass, and, and, and ice volume and, and freshwater. It actually is based in Antarctica. I mean, you, you can do a lot of research in the Arctic, <clears throat> of course. In the Arctic, most of the ice sits in, in Greenland, on the Greenland ice sheet. Um, Himalaya is a really a small area compared to the other two. Um, so yeah, that's Antarctica. And um, the problem, as you probably know, <laughs> can imagine is that Antarctica is really difficult to get to. It's a, a very remote place, a reason why it hasn't been probably occupied by people for 
millennia. And so um, what I'm doing there, I started with uh, data and data compilation as part of the International Polar Year. Uh, I worked then on biogeo biogeography of the ocean um, questions that includes uh, open access data, which is very important uh, for Antarctica, but also for any of the polar regions and anywhere in the science, really, if you want to do repeatable, if you want to be repeatable and um, transparent. And then from there, uh, I'm currently uh, have been there for three years working on tourist issues uh, with tourist vessels, and I use these so-called vessels of opportunity. Um, where you're on the vessel and then you can collect data in time for some of the areas which in hindsight turned out to be the most uh, changing areas actually probably in the world when it comes to climate change and that's the Antarctic Peninsula. So um, that's in a nutshell what I've done. Um, now I'm probably not the classic scientist in the sense of good doing an experiment and do measurements. Um, by now I find it almost an outdated concept. Uh, we work a lot with existing data. We put them together with machine learning and uh, uh, artificial intelligence and data mining questions to, for predictions and do large scale predictions uh, with the idea that this is more informative than when you just um, located on a small area or in a, in a yeah, experimental setup with a research camp or something. I'm, I usually don't work in research camps. So um, I work in space. I work in spatial issues, large scale. And um, for that, you need to move. And uh, in, in the Arctic, it's a bit easier because we have a lot of infrastructure there already. In Antarctica, um, which is a whole continent, um, 3000 meters high usually with ice and glaciers you basically can't move unless you have a vessel or perhaps a helicopter or plane which is really difficult to get so anyway i've worked on these um uh, vessels a lot for that reason which i've done for a long time in other places too i actually talked to somebody else who did something similar where they did their work by you know essentially hopping a tourist boat and doing it from from one of their zodiacs and it's yeah, I mean, it seems like a really easy way to, you know, get a ride and also probably be interesting for the tourists as well. Yeah, that's always part of it. I mean, you, you can always bring outreach in. It's um, many scientists will tell you it's not super pleasant to have people running around um, that are not part of your project <laughs> in your project. Um, uh, so so um, that's always a bit of a challenge. But yeah, outreach, of course, is important. Um, so you can communicate about um, climate change firsthand, you know, um, that's that's clear. But uh, if it gets too commercial, then, then you're a little bit uh, pushed in the margin. And so you need to, to make it happen. But you know, nowadays we do what we can do. And um, the problem with these, these vessel base, with any vessel really, is that you have a very poor research design. So that brings us into data mining, uh, where you actually use data that exist or that um, come that are basically suboptimal that are usually not even analyzed by other people and you look at them again and try to make sense out of those with machine learning and, and ai you can actually do that 
and you we've done a lot of those type of works where we take the so-called poor quality data and then um, apply them and use these techniques and, and get some generalizable statements out of them which i find very powerful i don't really understand how machine learning or any of that works because that's not my background or what i do mm -hmm. but i what i do know it is super powerful and can be like yeah it can be really good mm -hmm. yeah so i mean we've worked on on machine learning questions and applications for over 15 years um now it suddenly becomes a big hype but uh, we've done it for 15 years and many people have done it before that i mean the tools i'm using come from people who developed it literally in the 30s like like 30 years ago um so yeah there's a whole discipline out there um, without going much into detail i mean it's like uh, when you think of chess i mean chess is a big game uh, our brain is really limited uh, some people can um, play better chess than me, of course. <clears throat> it's very easy for, <laughs> to outcompete me, uh, but it's very tri tricky to do it with a, uh, out -compete a, to outcompete a computer. Nowadays, the computers are just better in capturing patterns and forecasting certain steps in the thousands generation or something. Um, so that, that's really what we do. We take these data, we, we apply them in a certain way and try to find generalizable uh, patterns that you can test. I mean, it's testable, of course, or repeatable. And then you can see if it's true or not. And when it comes to climate questions specifically, uh, climate change, melting ice, uh, forecasting where the glaciers will be, these things can be applied in a good way and can be very powerful. Uh, we also use it for wildlife questions. Um, what will the food chain be? Where will the penguins be in the future with this type of climate? Um, and then you basically move into risk modeling where you model certain scenarios based on these. Um, we've done the same with diseases. Um, we should mention that the Arctic are, or the polar regions in general, are pretty relevant for diseases that include Antarctica. Um, there are certain diseases that are carried by penguins and by other animals, including humans, bringing many diseases there. So anyway, um, you can apply these techniques to many things, including disease prediction or climate prediction or commercial prediction, and often has a lot of to do with commercial applications, including like, you know, the geologists who want to do uh, exploration of, of mining or, or minerals in Antarctica, they, they use the same techniques um, if they uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so these are, this is a concept with, with these machine learning techniques that they understand the patterns and they can predict them. Um, often the computer is, is smarter than you and me, as you mentioned, and um, that creates a challenge for us because often we find patterns that, that nobody of, from us has seen before or that we even understand, but they're there. And then you put in a lot of effort trying to understand what the computer really tries to tell you. That's that's for true. But the reality is that the human brain is limited. <clears throat> and that's an interesting <laughs> philosophical, ethical question to go into. Yeah, we don't like to think that our brains are limited, but they are. <laughs> that's true. This is a, it's an interesting question, by the way, just to elaborate a little bit on this uh, from an expert perspective. You know, Antarctica and these explorations have always been driven by experts. And with computers, you can show how poor experts are. I mean, we have many implications where we show experts make mistakes. 
Um, that is certainly true in the in the exploration phase of Antarctica. We see many tragic decisions made and tragic ex expeditions that resulted on this. I mean, it's all based on human error, right? I mean, I mean, human error is is a big topic, and so the idea is that with with decision support tools such as machine learning and and AI, you can actually make better decisions, um, which we then try to apply for sustainability for like sustainable decision making. So um, what we find is that experts often are really Really wrong. <laughs> that's a very shocking experience, but that that's uh, difficult to communicate. But that that's a fact. We we see that a lot. Yeah, humans are definitely fallible, and especially when you put the stress of like a, an extreme environment or the sun never setting or whatever. You know, we're gonna make more mistakes than I would on maybe an average day at home. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, you. I was gonna ask you like what kind of questions were you trying to answer you know with everything but you kind of alluded to it. you're trying to solve climate change questions and wildlife population change questions and yeah and that probably i would assume that those things are related as well in between it's a lot uh, you know the different types of of science and how people understand science and how they think they should do science. Uh, in my view, it should have a policy uh, implication and help policymakers or even ourselves to make better decisions if we can. Um, so that's where you're trying to work towards to having a policy link, a policy connection, because currently what has happened obviously is, 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 a, is a separation, like a divorce between the policymakers and what scientists see and what the public sees. So, for instance, with citizen science, which basically is when you are on a tourist vessel, you basically can invoke and involve tourists uh, to help doing science. Um, you move into a wider perspective there and better sampling, which you then can show as a result an outcome and predictions and deliver that to policymakers. So that in these policies that they are making or that they are embedded in, um, you can assist or add information to. Um, so that's pretty clear. So that's a bit our, our, our approach that we move towards a more sustainable lifestyle and a more a better governance that achieves that for the future generations. That sounds a little bit uh, remote and, and uh, theoretical, but uh, when you are aware of the climate change discussions with future generations and so on, it's, it's right there, right? I mean, it's completely there. Often people, scientists and institutions are very overwhelmed with that burden that they suddenly see that their science actually is useful and that they can use it and that it receives a lot of attention in the international audience. This is an interesting challenge for scientists too. But um, yeah, instead of being ivory tower, you try to be more in the mainstream and do that. That is not always in easy for, for, for individuals that are not trained. Like, you know, when you have a PhD, you are living in your basement there and into your science, um, you're removed from the public. Um, that, that's not what we are trained in. And so we also are challenged as a scientist, we are challenged with that, of course. And so I really appreciate here's the opportunity to, to speak to a wider audience. But um, yeah, policy applications is, is where our science really tries to sit in a good way. Uh, I'm not on a political spectrum whatsoever, but um, we try to move into um, yeah, global governance, sustainable governance, if we can. Yeah, I think that's a, a good segue, maybe, because I'm curious, I know a little bit about like the way Antarctica is governed. Like, I know that there is a treaty. I know there are regulations for tourism. I know it's like meant to be a space where nobody really owns a piece of it, but it's for science and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if you could maybe, you know, add on to 
a little bit yeah. that I do know. It's obviously um, a, a very big topic once you dive into it. I mean, Antarctica is a bit removed from our northern life. <laughs> Most um, the way how, how currently the, the Western civilization is, is is dominated is certainly by the northern hemisphere, which is Europe and uh, and US probably, and they're very dominant. Um, obviously, the world is bigger than that. So, as Antarctic Treaty is an Antarctic Treaty system is is designed to deal with the South and with the South on Pole that seems to be so relevant for for climate change and global questions, including food security and um, yeah human well-being. So, um, there's a treaty system system in place. It uh, came about after the Second World War, um, when there was more pressure um, worldwide and on on regulating things. And um, it basically, at that time, was designed to uh, balance uh, the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc. So that basically the Western world, which US uh, um, capitalism versus the Russians, which are communists mostly and socialist. And so um, that really was the idea that it will not um, mm, result into a warfare, uh, nuclear warfare specifically, um, and that we have no conflict. So the idea was simply to to to, to sign the treaty and say, hey, you know, um, this will be world peace. Um, that's number one. We do information uh, exchange only among scientists and we leave it there. We don't touch Antarctica as an international ground. It, it will be kept untouched. Um, now, nowadays with 7 billion people, the pressures on this Antarctic uh, treaty system have completely changed and have been increased dramatically. Many countries want to go there, people want to go there. Um, so the pressures are dramatic. And uh, just to start out with this point here, I think the uh, Antarctic treaty system as it was designed after the Second World War and perceived um, is really outdated. Um, that's a bit the problem when it comes to governance, uh, specifically when it comes to climate change, because there is no concept of protecting the temperature. You know, the cool temperature, which is really important to have because it, it, it guarantees us um, the rainforest, the equator or the uh, farming uh, that we have in Idaho or in the European Union or the um, um, Gulf current and so on, the world climate, um, that, that, that the maintenance and how to govern that is, is not addressed whatsoever in the Antarctic Treaty. As a matter of fact, um, and the way how the, how the Antarctic Treaty system has evolved, they almost steer clear from any carbon dioxide, man-made carbon dioxide questions, which is nowadays really anachronistic. It, it's absurd in a way. So, so back to the Antarctic Treaty system, um, there are around 54 states, um, 29 may vote. Um, there are certain blocks. I mentioned the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc. Um, but then with the fall of Soviet Union, uh, for instance, Ukraine was given um, uh, a station by the UK. So they basically became a Western player. And then the UK became also pretty dominant by basically giving um, treaty rights to some of its dominion countries, including Papua New Guinea. For instance, Papua New Guinea is part of the Antarctic Treaty, which um, if you know Papua New Guinea, it looks a bit strange perhaps, perhaps but then, um, Papua New Guinea is driven a lot by Australia, and Australia plays a lot with UK, um, much more than with the French government or the Spanish government. So you, you get the idea. I mean, there, there are some interesting political um, profiles, and they drive a lot of these policies. And specifically, um, if you know the history of the Antarctic exploration with Norway and other countries, the royal courts are involved. Um, 
there are certain claims that then were put aside in the Arctic Treaty. The idea is that there are no claims. It's international for everybody. You don't need a passport if you go to Antarctica. Um, but um, still, there are certain um, sentiments of, of dominance. And so what happened is that internationally, uh, Antarctic uh, rights and access rights and responsibilities get traded uh, in polar regions. For instance, Svalbard in Norway, it's an interesting place where, where you can feel this and see this in action because um, Svalbard has coal and resources that some countries are interested in, including fisheries in the surrounding area. And so, you know, there is, is a balance, international balance to be played with the United Nations and Antarctica and the Antarctic Treaty system is part of that. And that makes it very interesting. So our frustration has been with climate change, of course, because there's so much research in Antarctica going on on many fronts. And most people who have been there will, will agree that there is climate change and the glaciers are melting and they are thinning at least the vast majority of them are the relevant ones um, and nothing is done about it and that is frustrating um, if i may add here one one component um, people probably perceive antarctica as a wilderness area which it certainly is um, but it's not untouched in the sense, the sense of um, contaminants <clears throat> and certainly not when it comes to whales and seals um, before the Antarctic Treaty was in place, 1961, or got in place in 1961, um, the area was so completely overharvested and overfished, or certainly overharvested uh, from the whaling time. That was like 100 years ago uh, with some Norwegian and other activities, including the American sealers. And so the whole food chain has already flipped at least once due to humans. And currently we probably see um, increasingly more of this um, that also includes invasive species and so on. So anyway, that's a bit, it's a concept. Um, the Antarctic Treaty in my view is outdated, but on the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's a guarantee for world peace, for the maintenance of the climate. And um, it has many implications, uh, including mining um, and other areas. Yeah, it's so complicated, which is why I'm not a politician or in policy. <laughs> yeah, you will be surprised on this one. I mean, I, I agree. Um, it's like a, basically you have to treat it like an ambassador um, and the ambassadors get involved. Um, uh, departments of international policy get involved there, of course. And um, when you look at these, it's like uh, like a trade trade departments. You know, when you see how these trade departments make decisions strategically, um, it's 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 there's game theory involved. I mean, if you really have these um, think tanks involved that make strategic uh, scenarios, um, I think Antarctica is probably one of the prime areas where that should be applied and is applied. And the notion of an expert, again, a single singular expert who has lived for 30 years somewhere and, and goes every year to Antarctica, that, that is almost irrelevant by now because it's so strategic globally connected, you know, and um, I mean, we can talk later, talk about China, India and um, Korea and so on, Japan being involved also now, and um, it gets really super complex. Yeah, I think my brain capacity is not big enough to, to be an expert. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 I think most people, I mean, I have the same problem. Most people obviously have the problem then that if they would make decisions, they probably would make poor decisions. And, and so, you know, you can easily say, hey, let's protect all of Antarctica, which I think is, is probably a good idea, except like what we do with the 7 billion people and what they eat. So then you deal with fisheries, you deal with uh, seafloor mining, 
Mm, climate change, of course, you know, um, uh, if climate change continues, what we see perhaps in 100 years, you can have some farming on some of the other islands on Antarctica, you know, who knows, with sheep and so on. I mean, I mean, these are very interesting and strategic decisions, so um, that in the moment, in my view, are not well handled, addressed, and also the bias in Antarctica is also pretty um, uh, peculiar because Argentina, for instance, in the 40s, tried really hard to to get the foot on the ground and Antarctica to have a more stronger uh, rep representation in the Antarctica. Although, if you ask the public, they will probably don't not relate Argentina as an Antarctic nation, which Argentina is very strong, uh, tried and still tries very strong to do. It has partly to do with Falkland Islands. Uh, which are more or less British. So anyway, you get the idea. I mean, it's it's very complex, and yeah, I don't know what to do. But the the the, the potential for failure <laughs> is really high. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's not just failure there; it'd be failure worldwide, basically, in some way. Exactly. So, so for instance, um, when you think of a scientist who goes there to Antarctica every year, some people have done it for 30, 40 years. Um, they're not just a scientist, you know, and in earnest, they, they have a much higher responsibility. And often I, I, I don't see that reflected in the institutions, in their mandates and in their awareness um, that can have many repercussions on, again, food security. And just to give you one example, um, not all the countries are involved in the fisheries of Antarctica. They don't get the products like New Zealand, for instance, get many products from Antarctica and they consume them in New Zealand or ship them out. But there are countries that are landlocked, let's say Bhutan or Nepal or Mongolia. They will never have access to, to Antarctica on the one hand, um, resource-wise, but then uh, when the climate is changing in Antarctica um, due to industrialized nations, uh, Mongolia or Nepal will be the ones that suffer from it. Um, th that's a very un unfair, unequal game. It results into this concept of environmental justice, and that makes it really complex, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so complicated. Yeah, because there's, I mean, the very broad Get, I don't know, broad words is like all these countries that didn't really create the problem that are low lying or whatever are going to be the ones that bear the brunt of it when it's, you know. Yeah, I, th I think so. So that's why, I mean, my interest, you asked me earlier about them, scientists, you know. Um, my, my interest in, in these regions is comes from, from being in the Arctic and seeing the complexities we have in the Arctic a lot of indigenous people, and um, I just finished some some research for the Ant for the Himalaya and Hindu Kush Himalayas area, and there is a lot of um, Buddhism and Hinduism and so on, shamanism. Um, I mean, one of the paradigms there is that they are arguing they're all one, they're all connected with in one universe and one system. You find it a lot in traditional. Um, beliefs. So um, from a governance perspective that that provides some guidance um, how you can handle and operate these areas because uh, the idea that uh, the Enlightenment <clears throat> uh, by James Cook or that uh, the Western philosophy handles these Antarctic areas really well is obvious to see it, it doesn't. It's not working. It's failing. We should admit that and say that. Um, the question then is, what do we do? And um, yeah, the Antarctica is probably not Christian. It's probably not Russian Orthodox either. Uh, perhaps the more wider perspective, the holistic views might be more suitable for a governance. 
if you bring that to the Antarctic Treaty System, um, they would probably um, kick you out within five minutes um, because that's just not on the agenda, you see. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a problem. And so we need to work on this change. And that's where the science comes in. When you think of the British Antarctic Survey, BUS is a very well established long-term recognized powerhouse in Antarctica and um, they have very little on, on spiritual values of, of how to operate in Antarctica right um, what religion should be driving Antarctica and I don't have a good answer for it but in my view it should be holistic whatever holistic is and it should be something that takes into account countries like Mexico or uh, yeah, Malaysia, of course, which is part of the treaty system and so on. I mean, it, it's all connected and that that is um, the challenge to bring it home to people. But it's also, uh, I think, the beauty of it to really show because it's not only limited to Antarctica when you think of it. I mean, when you talk to Aborigines in, in Australia, they will tell you everything's connected and we're all, all one. <laughs> so anyway, that's the bit the um, concept there and um, how to bring such a change to uh, the Western nations and Northern Hemisphere. Wow, <laughs> good luck. That's a big challenge. But we, we've published on this. I mean, we, we, we promote that. But it's, it's very difficult, tricky to do. Yeah, those sort of um, holistic views and things are, yeah, just never talked about in any sort of governance, really. Uh, I mean, not here either. So yeah, and that brings me back to, I mean, I'm happy you asked this question about governance. I mean, you know, in, in my view, uh, being a German, I mean, I see, sometimes I see the word very hierarchical. So you would, in, in the US, you would look at the Supreme Court judges and you ask the Supreme Court judges, hey, what do you think about this? Because, uh, you know, the Endangered Species Act is has listed a few penguins. I mean, they, they've done it. They completely understand the value of penguins as indicator species. Um, and there have been some Supreme Court judges that, that really are really, nowadays you would call them activists or, um, yeah, they would engage into Arctic protection, right? Uh, I haven't seen a single Supreme Court judge, though, that really openly admits, let's protect Antarctica, which I don't understand why, because the law should deal with it. So the much I think our law is very advanced and very democratic, uh, it should also include these holistic views. And it, it comes with, um, yeah, uh, leading uh, institutions and their, their leaders and so on to, aware, to be aware. The funny thing is, like you, we talked about tourism earlier, uh, you know, when I'm I'm dealing with as a, as, a, as a guide with tourists, I see a lot of these type of individuals being very curious about it. I mean, I, I have convinced probably an Australian high ranking politician at joining the steady state economy uh, by just showing how relevant the climate maintenance of climate uh, is uh, and that the climate currently is affected by industrialized activities that we um, are not that are basically out of control because they're growing in an economic growth unlimited you know that's our goal that's obviously very harmful so anyway my point is that there is a general interest people like to learn about it but if you bring it home what it really means and you see that we have to change our business and our structure and that that's I think the take-home message from Antarctica that you really can bring it home and you should and it's not only Antarctic it's also your local ice and your own local glacier in Colorado or in in the Alps or wherever <laughs> your next glacier is located you know they're all mating mostly so anyway that's the, the, the take-home message and one of the approaches. Mm -hmm. 
One of my main complaints about just like humanity on the whole is the inability to be proactive and think about the big picture. I feel like humans tend to make the decision that's like short-term gain, but then long-term negative. And it's like we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time. That is true. But when you say humans, you need to be very careful there because there are some humans that actually don't. Uh, historically, and even now in some cultures still, um, that have that view of um, not overreaching, the, uh, the acceptance of uh, a limit, of a carrying, carrying capacity limit. You know, it's just the Western people that actually were trained uh, to ignore these limits. Um, when I talk to my mother and, and to uh, my grandfather or something, I mean, they will all tell you there's a limit. I can only do this and more is not possible for me. The new generation, um, including in the 70s, uh, close my parents, they, they went over the limit and they, they almost were trained to go over that limit. It was almost a new um, paradigm. Hey, go over your limit, you know, try your limits, break them, extend them. And that's what we've done. We're flying to the moon, we go to the seafloor. Um, that's a very peculiar case of the Western people that other people that, that I work a lot with indigenous people or at least travel there and talk to them, uh, that they wouldn't do. They're very shy about it. They're saying, nah, I don't know if I can do it, you know? I mean, I mean, the indigenous people uh, in Nepal have never climbed Mount Everest and they don't want to. Uh, same, there's a whole mountain called um, Kailash that is holy and where they know you, if you climb it, then it's, it's, it's a sin. So it's forbidden to climb that mountain. I mean, the idea that we have to stand on every peak and have to go to every South Pole and uh, ski it or swim it or <laughs> whatever we do, you know, that's a very Western concept. Uh, you can argue that a lot of progress was brought to it and probably did. It's probably true, but you need to put it in context and in balance. And uh, we should move away from this crazy growth and we should have a limit. There is a limit somewhere and perhaps we should just leave Antarctic by itself or at least use it in a sustainable fashion. No, you're totally right. I, I, I say humanity broadly, but what I was thinking about when I said that was I'm thinking about South Louisiana in general, which is, you know, a lot of wetlands, very susceptible to sea level rise. And then yet the state, again, that's a very small portion of the world. The state makes decisions that are uh, counterproductive for long term, and it, it can be a, a bit frustrating. And I just, you know, yeah. see it with things like hurricanes and stuff like that, which will, you um. know. Yeah, I think it, it costs lives, you know, I mean, when you say frustrating, I would be more, more direct about it and say it costs lives and costs a lot of money. Um, I think when it comes to these, these sea level rise questions, um, the Army Corps of Engineers is still doing a techno fix and giving us a new dam, where in reality, uh, it's, it's carbon dioxide and methane and you need these um, riparian zones in wilderness states so that they can buffer this, you know. But when it comes, to, I have to tell you though, when it comes to uh, um, sea level rise due to um, climate change and the melting of the Antarctica, for instance. I mean, this is probably the most scary scenario that I get out of Antarctica is the melting ice because it's a gigantic ice sheet and it will change our sea or oceans. Historically, we actually have seen a uh, change of oceans, of course, um, due to various reasons, uh, mostly glacial glaciation. But the point is that for our civilization, as we are used to, think of Florida, think of Hawaii, think of um, 
yeah, um, Holland, <laughs> think of London, think of Hamburg, where I come from. Um, that's bad news, and that people need to adjust. And um, my my advice would be in the current scenario, run to the hills because this is really like I mean, one meter sea level rise would be dramatic change. Um, when you include the Antarctic estimations, that's way beyond that. I mean, we could be five meters, we could be ten meters. Uh, who's who knows where it stops? You know, I mean, this is. You know, I don't know. That that's very scary. When once you look into this scenario, so that's one of the Antarctic uh, take-home messages. Is uh, when I when I come back there every time, I'm I'm amazed that we ignore that. This is so scary. I'm I'm really scared <laughs> for future generations and even for ourselves. Yeah, I I think about that when I'm out in the field a lot because, like I said, I'm a wetland scientist, so I'm in the coastal wetlands a lot. I'm just like, man, this would be gone if we got a meter of sea level rise. But I guess a lot of it, I can only speak to around here. I guess a lot of people around here don't see the connection. Yeah, and it doesn't happen in one single wave, you know, I mean, this is like these, these gradual changes and we see them really strong already. I mean, Bangladesh as an example, right? I mean, Bangladesh has just recently a massive flood that probably covered 50% of the country. Um, and uh, it spoils the water sources, um, the rice will not grow. And when you think of countries like Vietnam, right? I mean, 50% of, of Vietnam is, is, is in, in that, that range. I mean, again, um, Holland uh, with, a, with, a, with a dike that won't fix it, uh, Northern Germany, Denmark, and so on. I mean, there, there are many problems in this. And again, it, it's not like one fast event. It happens gradually and you see a retreat of options that you have and it's not fixable through physical means like like building a dam that that won't won't cover it um and it costs also a lot of money in addition yeah so that that's a massive problem i see around here that they build like a flood wall or whatever and people are all excited like that's gonna save us but it's just something tangible that's like not really proactive it's just reactive because that area flooded like five years before or something from yeah. some Hurricane. And, and the question again is, you know, when you have so many people, like, where, where do you go from here? Like, if, if you you can really bring it down, that's easy from the sea level rise is caused in Antarctica, where we have most of the ice. I mean, Greenland also is melting other places, but most of the water, most of the ice comes from the Antarctica. It's connected with currents and we see it worldwide. We see it in India, we see it in, in, in Europe and so on. So that you really can bring it home. So in the meantime, we have like 7 billion people or might be more on earth and um, we need to find a lifestyle and a whole education system and pension plan and so on, healthcare, um, how we can live such a life without conflict. That That is not, not simple. <laughs> um, so that's no. uh, the governance message there, I think. Yeah, it's not simple, but that would that be like a dream world to me? <laughs> Yeah, you would think so, but um, of course, it's nice to have a dream. I mean, let's 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 yeah. do it for the better. But in the meantime, you need to see there's some cultures that have already adjusted for that. Mm -hmm. They can handle it. For instance, in Alaska, where we have same issues, um, you know, when you go back a little bit, the indigenous people they have been nomadic. I mean, they knew that that some areas are better to live in certain times of years than others. So once you settle them, you run into this coastal uh, settlement problem and the coastal uh, village problem, uh, sea level rise and so on. Um, um, 
and the food is often not there so really around. So, so for them, um, a nomadic lifestyle has evolved and that's not a bad idea. Perhaps in the Western world, we should think about this and how we make um, a more flexible lifestyle possible, including a different registration, a different tax system. Um, yeah, I don't know, different accounting systems, you know, um, but just, just being more, I'm not saying on the move, but but more adjusting to, to, to these, these realities and, um, I mean, I'm always get a kick out of these real estate agencies <clears throat> that are selling homes on in San Diego on the on the coastline or yeah, uh, Georgia or wherever. You know, I mean, when you look at the development plans in the last 30 years, despite warnings, they all go to the ocean. I mean, everybody wants to have an ocean view property. That's not realistic for us. We shouldn't even raise our children accordingly. Just say, you know, there's a limit and. Not everything is possible these days anymore. We still can be happy, happy and good people. I mean, humility still matters, but um, that's the bit uh, the message, you know. Yeah, if we were as I don't know, I'm thinking I'm just thinking about the U.S. just because that's where I live. But as a society, if we were like a little bit more flexible and adaptable, that would be helpful. Yeah, it's, it's often a lock-in, you know, like when you think of student loans as an example, right? I mean, if you lock in people with student loans for the next 40 years of their life, then it sets pressures and you need to do something, same as mortgages and so on. So anyway, um, I think there needs to be a new model and hopefully it's a transitional peaceful to, um, conversion. But how that's to be done, I don't know. But the current model, the business as usual, certainly I, I don't have a good outlook for that at all. Yeah, it, it just can't continue that way because it's not going to last forever. I have a question. I've never heard, I mean, I've obviously heard of the Himalayas, but I've never heard the, the term three poles and I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, so um, the, the notion of a pole is a very, is an interesting narrative, right? Um, it, it comes, really goes back to the explorers as they see the world as a, as a round globe <laughs> as, a, as a ball, which is, is, is right. But then the idea is that there's, there's up and down, like the north is, is North Pole and south is South Pole. And um, because we live in Europe at that time, um, and most uh, explorers came from there, um, it's like always south and we go down to the end of the world. Um, so therefore, there's a certain symmetry involved. The symmetry is that um, north and south would be pure. It's like a very purist view of the world and very symmetrical. When you bring in the third pole, um, you will see it's not in the equator <laughs> and it's it's somewhere located like there in the middle is a triangle and the symmetry breaks down. Um, so that's a very peculiar perspective, but it's driven by uh, the geology, of course. And so, yeah, there are these three poles. The Everest basically is the center of that pole, but really it's a Tibetan plateau. Um, which most of the third pole from seen from an altitude perspective is actually in, in, in the Tibetan area. Um, it's like 5,000 meters, it's a high plateau. And um, yeah, there are some peaks and that's the third pole. This idea is not mine, by the way, it was brought by somebody in the 50s already with the International Polar Year and so on. Um, it just never caught on. Now the third pole, the three poles is a very hot subject because China gets involved and China wants to be involved. So it brings in China, in, but I think it brings in China in a good way because we like to have a discussion about the, the third pole and how um, areas in Tibet and Bhutan and Nepal and uh, 
uh, even even Mongolia and um, Tajikistan and the associated areas um, are are um, dealt with, and how we can develop them, or how we can can help them, or how we they want to be dealt with. Um, there's a lot of questions there. It actually has a lot to do with uh, political strategy and and. Um, global politics because as a third poll, if I speak specifically about that one, uh, has a lot of the rare earth, the rare earth minerals. Um, you can find rare earths in other places, you can also find some, some of them in Antarctica, but you can actually exploit and refine them in, in China. That's what uh, has made China really um, a leader in the rare earth uh, minerals. So when you think of your mobile phone or electric car or something, um, suddenly the, the mineral resources play a big role and um, many of them are located in the third pole. In the meantime, there are over 2 billion people that are relying on the water. Water um, is getting scarce and um, there you can literally buy uh, ice from the glaciers of the Mount Everest or you can buy a cocktail made out of water from Everest or something. I mean, it's possible. Um, so anyway, um, people start to export water um, and um, the resources there become really precious while we have issues like indigenous people in Tibet, uh, we have them in Nepal, we have refugees, we have um, uh, warfare or at least uh, tensions there with, with India and China um, and so on. Um, Russia is involved, by the way, also. Um, America, of course, involved. There's is a very big, big subject. And when it comes to climate change, you don't see climate change probably um, as strong as, as in the, on Everest itself. So anyway, there, there are a lot of these type of aspects and I can talk more about it if you want me to. Um, me being a wildlife biologist, I mostly deal with uh, biodiversity there, but it's a watershed climate issue. I guess I'm curious how or, or what it is that makes that like the third pole. Is it because it's this high area with a lot of ice? Is that what ties the all three together or is it something else? Yeah, the glaciers. Again, the, the, most of the glaciers and ice is certainly Antarctica, then come Greenland and the Arctic. Um, and then from there, there is nothing other than uh, Everest area and the Tibetan plateau. And there's a lot of permafrost. Permafrost is a, uh, the frozen ground. Um, so yeah, and then after after the third pole, I think for a long time there comes nothing and then come tiny areas in the Alps and Rocky Mountains, of course, have a little bit Patagonia and so on. Um, and even Africa has a little bit of permafrost. Papua New Guinea has a glacier, or Indonesia at least. Um, Australia has a few. I mean, they are they are all over the place, and they play they play a role as well. But but from a concentration perspective, the biggest, highest mountain areas uh, are, is, is in the third pole, and that reaches the atmospheric layer, such a jet stream that affects to uh, affects it. So yeah, um, the conditions on Everest are very similar to what you find on uh, Antarctica or in Greenland. And you will not be surprised that many of the explorers, including Reinhold Messner as an example, um, he has explored all these three areas That's because for him, once you have the expertise working on ice, working on glaciers, um, then it's the same. And so it's very comparable. I mean, for us, it looks like exotic and different. Um, and in a way it is, but on the other hand, the unifying criteria that makes it part of the pole and the third pole just has has these um, resources. But um, 
the uh, North Pole and the uh, Third Pole together, they have indigenous people. That's what the Antarctica does not, not have. Antarctica is very unique in this uh, aspect that there are almost no indigenous people. Indigenous people play a role in New Zealand um, for these uh, summer areas and certainly Patagonia. But um, Antarctica otherwise is, is a continent there where, where there are no humans whatsoever. Yeah, that makes sense. I just was, I just, I just wasn't sure about why, why that one was included, but it makes total sense because, yeah, it's a massive concentration of ice. Yeah. So if I may add one more thing, I mean, um, in, in the policy arena, this this gets interesting because. The International Polar Year as a global research initiative or the geophysical years, same style, um, they never have really dealt with that. They haven't really fully, they recognized it, but they have not done and uh, put any money there or any researchers really truly to, to study that. There is certainly research going on, but not in the, in the con context. Um, and so uh, with the other two poles. And so, so that's, I think, should be done. So with the National Science Foundation in the US, as an example, we think that they should be dealing with this because it's time to realize that our climate in the US or in the Western world, Northern Hemisphere, is, is directly connected with what happens in the other ones. So if you really want to take climate change serious and want to have a good impact, you need to deal with um, the third pole, uh, with Antarctica and so on, and with all its political players. Um, in this case, this is China and India and um, yeah, parts of Russia. Um, so anyway, it's it's very important from a from a policy perspective and from a from a science perspective that to see that we're all connected. Uh, you know, I'm based in Alaska, but we have species that connect with all six continents, like birds. You know, so um, we have birds that go to Himalaya, we have birds that go to Antarctica, um, we have birds that go to Africa too. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's all connected. It's, it's just our human mind, as I mentioned before, that, that cannot really grasp these connectivities. But now that we have pandemics, I think it comes home to everybody that we see these connections. Yeah, I was I was thinking about shorebirds. I was like, shorebirds are some of like the longest migrating species out there, and they go all over from Alaska to South America or wherever. And it's not only only shorebirds. Um, they are songbirds. Uh, mm -hmm. Usually, um, the big connector. It's also a little bit in Antarctica. Is this idea of a step? So a grass step. These are usually the non-forested areas. They were too cold or there were no nutrients or whatever. Um, and so there's some birds that live in these steppes. Um, some of them are pipits, like little songbirds that are, look almost like a thrush. They eat seeds, uh, long spurs and so on. And some of those birds are connecting uh, from step to step. And when you look at the original location of steps, you will certainly find the major step in Mongolia and uh, even Himalaya areas. Um, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Kazakhstan, um, up to Hungary. And then um, you find other steps in Beringia, that's the ancient step uh, between uh, Alaska and Russia. Um, and then you find certainly the Dakotas as an example, uh, Great Grand Prairie, right? Um, and then uh, uh, some of the islands in Antarctica, the, the surrounding islands also have some sort of a grass vegetation, not really a step, but it's similar. So, so you get unifying uh, vegetations and vegetation types um, and birds often uh, move back and forth between those. It's not only seabirds, it's not only shorebirds, it's also these, these songbirds, including some raptors too. Um, there are some raptor species that connect, for instance, Himalaya with um, 
uh, Africa or even some Alaskan birds go to to Russia and so on. So anyway, it's it's a whole group of birds. Yeah, I just said shorebirds because that's what my background is in. So that was just the first thing I thought of. But yeah, like wildlife doesn't obey political boundaries, right? And so they travel the world. I, I guess my point with saying was that was like they use lots of different parts of the world. And I think it just is an example of the way the world is connected is I think what I was trying to get at. Yeah, the, the, um, the idea of a nation state, you know, that that's a little bit uh, the issue there. Um, the nation state really is an artifact when you compare to nature. Um, so we're living so much in our nation state because it affects us in so many ways. Um, but um, perhaps the idea of a nation state needs to be let go a little bit more, you know. Perhaps we should move more into a, a different federal, I don't know what's the governance system that would be, a federated state, um, United Nations or something like that. But um, there are many implications. But anyway, the point is that, as you stated, um, nature doesn't recognize those boundaries. Yeah, they definitely don't. Um, you said a couple of times International Polar Year, and I wrote it down, and I'm, I don't know what that is, if it was like one specific year or if that's like how we have water years with my work, you know, which is like not a calendar year or if this was like a one-off kind of thing. So what is that? that? So um, there's a lot of history in, in trying to understand the, um, the poles. <laughs> And um, there have been initiatives, mostly more or less an idea, to in one year to study the poles. And it was a really good concept. Um, it was actually started by uh, some Europeans, uh, Germans in this case, Weibrecht is his name. And um, there have been different geophys- uh, inter- international polar years, IPYs. So the first one was 1882. And then there was another one, uh, 1930, just, um, um, between the wars. And then there was another one, um, the geophysical year after the Second World War, with the idea that it would um, bring us a big leap of progress in science and in our understanding of the world. And at that time, it really was. Um, so there has been another international polar year in 2007, and I was part of that. And that was for the first time that really uh, climate change and so on was really brought on the international agenda and that people have coordinated research programs. Every year, the IP, every time the IPYs have grown, uh, in earlier times, it was only Greenland or a little bit the Norwegian Arctic perhaps. Uh, and then it, it, it became a coordinated uh, Arctic concept and then it, it um, reached out to the uh, Antarctica and so on. And I think the next one again should, should really be uh, included in the uh, for the third pole. But the point is that this is a unique opportunity in one or two years really it's because it's North Pole and South Pole have different seasons and um, they reach across years. Uh, in this time to have coordinated measurements with many stations and many nations just embracing the relevance of polar regions with the idea of climate and well-being and temperature maintenance and, and study this. Um, it was called the geophysical year in the 50s because um, people focused a lot on, on minerals at that time and on, on just the idea of plate tectonics, as you perhaps you know the theory, 
wasn't even fully established. Uh, um, it was um, promoted in the 1917, but until it really hit mainstream was 1960s, and you wouldn't get a professor job if you claim <laughs> the plates are moving. I mean, I mean, you know, at that time it has been a big breakthrough, and so um, these international polar years are science years. Um, scientists uh, like that because they get funded for a year or two. <laughs> they have to write many many publications from it. But um, in the meantime, it's supposed to um, um, move forward the, the, the global understanding and the public understanding of what polars are, polar areas are. Um, I think we should also need to have an international tropical year, for instance, or international biodiversity year, which actually exists some one way or another. So anyway, my point is that these IPYs have been historic events of um, just studying and understanding and devoting resources to the polar regions um, and the moment the, the next polar year will be probably in 20 or 30 years from now which i think we probably don't have any ice left then so we are promoting an, an, an urgency uh, international polar year in five years or ten years but um, it takes a lot of time to plan i don't know if we get to it but my point is that um, these are really relevant um, milestones and if you believe in the nation state and civilization they have helped civilization forward in a good way that was the idea and one outcome of the international uh, geophysical year or polar year 1957 was the antarctic treaty they said, hey, let's do science and let's not fight. Let's do world peace. So that was noble, I think. <laughs> uh, I think my new tagline needs to be, let's do science and let's not fight. Because that sums yeah. up my worldview, I think. <laughs> you, would, you would think so. And I, I certainly come from the same angle. Um, you have to admit, though, that, that science costs resources and that people need something to do. And science is not for everybody, obviously. It's a little bit of an elite exercise. So the question is more like, how do we bring everybody in? And that's, I think, a challenge for the scientists themselves, uh, because you know the, the education of a PhD itself, a, a, a doctorate is very um, elitist. Uh, if you think of Oxford and Cambridge and so on, um, we should have a wider view. And I think um, the idea of citizen science is, is a good one and it should be involved. So we, yeah, we should bring in school children, we shouldn't bring in uh, teachers, we should bring in everybody, of course, in this time new concept of science and the National Science Foundation so, and sh should understand it. As long as we're still dealing with expertism and with research funding being competitive and all those things, with people who have millions of dollars of research funding and not sharing them, uh, then we're probably far away from it and that's probably pretty counterproductive. Yeah, honestly, that whole system is why I quit. I say I quit. I stopped my formal education after my master's because I don't like to hustle for money or do any of yeah. that or it turns out mm. write grants. <laughs> so It is true. Yeah. This is a, it's, it's, a, it's a problem in the sciences and I think mm -hmm. it, we need to improve it dramatically. I'm, I'm promoting it, of course, if I can. Um, it's not easy because science get used in an industrial way currently. It's very industrial and it's also very capitalistic and commercial. And I don't think it's healthy. Um, the history of the Western science has probably never been any other because it really goes back to the royal courts. And to the very day we have that culture and I think we should break that. I completely agree with you. Again, I think the American concept really of citizen science uh, is good. The job description should be changed and it starts with the Academy of Science. The Academy of Science is not really holistic whatsoever. It's very driven by engineers and medical 
considerations, which might have a justification, but I do believe we should be more open to that. So if you are, um, you are a little bit put off by the science, then I understand you and I'm sorry for it. And I hope it, we can make it better. And um, we need to push for it though, because the scientists are the last ones that push for it. So I think with climate change, um, a lot of things have changed and, and uh, also with bird science, as you know, birds have usually been used as this uh, public vehicle. Um, when you know the work from Rachel Carlson uh, and others um, who have, have pushed for this, but more needs to be done. And it has to do with, with money and how to distribute wealth. I mean, uh, there's no whole diff different discussion about the distribution of wealth and how you make people interested in this. But um, the idea is to start this concept and make it better. I completely agree with you. Yeah. One of the things you said that stuck with me just now was the sort of the history. I never thought about how we ended up with the system we end up, like how it came from, you know, royal courts and things like that. I never even, I've just never thought about it. It's fascinating. Yeah, this, the history of science is very interesting. I mean, the, the problem though is in the long run, that science needs resources and the resources need to come from somewhere. So when you, for instance, go back to the Hawaiian tribes, the Hawaiians, they had royal courts and they had artists and they had scientists and experts, the scientists being an expert, um, that were basically with a court. Um, so these scientists were certainly used for the courts as well. I mean, um, there are some interesting questions how you deal with those type of things. And um, But now we live in, in a nation state and we have laws and we can make it much better. I mean, if all of us pay some tax and do other things and I mean, the uh, nations are rich, should be rich enough to, to allow a good sustainable science. I think that that's the aim. I don't think that there are signs in the moment and certainly not when you have research uh, uh, vessels that uh, drive around for millions of dollars in Antarctica, that that's really sustainable. I, I think it's not. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like it. Well, it's also like this, the dynamics involved who dominates these research vessels, which scientists uh, are these, what's their message. And I, as I mentioned to you in the Antarctic Treaty System, they, they don't deal with carbon dioxide because not everybody agrees on carbon dioxide, man-made carbon dioxide being a problem for man-made climate change. And some scientists for funding reasons, other reasons don't go with it. And that that's really harmful. I mean, you, you should really stick to the facts and say, hey, here, here's what it is. Also recognizing that our own job description as a scientist is probably not very pure and should be improved. You've said so many things, you've just kind of boggled my brain <laughs> this whole this last hour. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of things that like I've thought about but hadn't thought about in this sort of the context that you presented it and uh, it's got the little hamster wheels in my head turning. You know, from a scientific perspective, again, uh, scientists usually publish, they publish books and, and publications and these publications, we don't have real copyright on it. Um, it's in the hand of these publishers and that's also a financial entity. Um, so that that really, I think, um, got a little bit flipped on his head. And so, um, you know, the, the whole job description of the scientist and publishing is, is very, um, yeah, it's, it's not a very, very useful one for the public, I find. And um, it really narrows us down. And so you, you I, I get surrounded by colleagues that, that are very narrow. 
Um, they don't have that, but I just what we just discussed, they don't have even the time or the resource or even, even the understanding of it. And I, fi I find it very sad. Um, so yeah, I'm happy that you understand it. I'm hopefully more people will understand it. I hope that uh, we can uh, make that message a bit better. But the polar regions help us to move into that, that type of um, discussions to have. I want to read more about Really, I don't know anything about the Himalayas and that whole area, so I'm definitely intrigued by that, and I want—I would like to read more about that. That's the one of the, my first thoughts about this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stereotype things about any of the polar regions, you know, like mm -hmm. you go to the Arctic, you find Inuit, you go to Antarctica and you're an explorer and you um, go to Himalayas and you climb Everest. That's probably is a completely wrong approach. I mean, you really need to go there and just sit there and take it all in and then develop yourself into this. Um, one of the wake up calls for me is that, that for instance, when you talk about the Everest, the Himalaya and all these things, um, Nepal actually is only a small player in this discussion, and most of Nepal is actually a very low, low land. I mean, it's not in the mountains. The mountains areas are just on the border of Nepal to, 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 to the Tibetan and Bhutan area and so on, and India. Um, so anyway, um, that's an eye-opening experience, and you, you need to grow it on yourself and to find it and explore it yourself. You know, it's difficult to um, come up with stereotypes, there and you probably will find them disproven. Yeah, just in general, I feel like experiencing something is usually pretty eye-opening, whatever that experience may be. Um, ah. Perhaps one, one more aspect to it. Um, we talked about tourism a little bit and the idea of outreach, and that's all wonderful. But with tourism in the polar regions, you have a couple of problems. One is that they need resources. So just bringing tourists there is, is difficult. You need, And then there's a carbon footprint that's actually pretty high, and that's probably almost not justifiable anymore. And so then you have to ask the question about effectiveness of these tourists and this is tourism in general. And I find the effectiveness is unfortunately very low. It becomes more like a global commodity to go to Svalbard or to go to Everest or to um, Antarctica. And, and that, that aspect in, in tourism is, is not really well um, promoted just because um, it's left in the hand of the tourist industry. And the tourist industry, of course, needs money to survive. And nowadays, as a matter of fact, for Antarctica, it's it's mostly China that this is, is China is a big driver in Antarctic tourism, including the vessels. You know, there's a shortage of vessels like a bottleneck, and China is, is trying to, to hire them and to develop their own. Um, so anyway, um, the the perspective that some countries have on polar tourism is very different than what uh, we have in, in the US or in, yeah, I don't know, Norway or something. And, and the question is, what, what's sustainable there? And probably the sustainable question would be either to have quotas or limit the access and uh, not not go completely crazy about it and not, not, not increase the polar tourism too much. That's a very difficult position because, number one, how do you control access and how do you make it in a fair way and then secondly um, if you put it on the open market then um, the less seats you have the more the price would be and it will only be some rich people who can afford it and um, so that's and uh, puts a constraint on polar tourism the much I liked polar tourism and much I love to be there and I um, studied a lot and it was really good there um, I think um, the real world outlook um, if you leave it only in the hands of some um, institutions or some organizations which are driven by the industry uh, which are basically driven by banks um, it's, it's really difficult I don't have a good outlook there at the moment in the current framework 
Yeah, I don't know what the solution would be, but I, I often wonder if the, so like, I wonder about this in my own research. Like we spend a lot of time driving and our boat is not fuel efficient and things like that. And so I wonder about like the cost of all of that versus the benefit of the science. And for my work, I feel like the benefit outweighs the cost, but it's different if you're just traveling somewhere to be somewhere, but then also if you can see something and connect with it, that makes you more willing to like work for it and try to protect it. But there's all these other things at play and it's just, it seems like a really complex problem. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a common narrative, right? Like with science in general, like we need to do the science to understand things better. Um, but reality is you don't uh, because um, many of the scientific breakthroughs have are based on not understanding a system whatsoever. Um, a typical example is the London case of cholera and how cholera was treated there as a cholera outbreak by Dave Snow. Um, so, um, you know, we don't understand the systems uh, and we don't operate as if we would understand them and we don't make the right decisions either way. And you sometimes can make decisions proactively without knowing everything. So um, I think for now it's clear man-made climate, man-made carbon dioxide and man-made climate change is the issue. We need to fix it, period. I don't need more science to it. Um, when it comes to bird research as an example, uh, it's the literature is full of um, studies that were not used and implemented by policy endless. I mean, what we currently see when it comes to bird protection is, is the opposite. Um, and our carbon, carbon dioxide decision political level in, in all of the civilized countries almost, um, it's like industrialized country, I mean, um, ha hasn't made use of the science. I mean, science almost used as a scapegoat to, yeah, let's do more science and we can win more time and then can we can be more destructive. Uh, it's very disappointing that the science is so ineffective. And when it comes to students, unfortunately, um, they're often locked in. They think that they, of course, I mean, I was one of them, uh, thought that my science really has an impact and it doesn't. And when a student, you also want a career, you know, then the idea is that I have a better career and better job, so I continue doing it. But reality is um, the, the real gain that, that is the, this type of project really brought us uh, is tiny, if even that. I mean, the state of the world currently is very negative and it's a, we have an environmental crisis and we have a global ocean crisis, we have a climate crisis, we have an Antarctic crisis polar crisis and we have a social crisis and we have warfares all over the world. <laughs> I don't know what, what can be worse than that, you know. Um, so the idea of science as we define it, it's, it's very, uh, it hasn't worked in my view. Yeah, it's tough. Um, yeah, the work that I do, I work on this massive coastal wetlands monitoring program and all of the monitoring data feeds the, uh, all the modeling um, for all the restoration projects and the diversions and stuff that they're working on. And so it's like trying to figure out, did this project work? Did it do what we thought it would do? If it didn't, why didn't it work? Because they're trying to do all these things and they're using all of the information to, I, it's all above my, my head. I'm not a modeler or a GIS expert, yeah. but yeah. So what I often see, you know, with climate climate predictions, for instance, um, we have models that we use for climate change, and we have certain scenarios. We have a, a, a low impact scenario, we have a medium scenario, and we have a have a worst case, so called worst case scenario. We're actually running out of worst case scenarios. So when you look at these these uh, these models. Um, 
you will see that they're often not realistic, like many of the models are based on the Kyoto Agreement or on the Paris Accord, which we haven't reached, right? I mean, the Kyoto Agreement is completely outdated. Uh, the Paris Agreement was not reached. I mean, currently it's open-ended warming. That's what we're running into. So, so the models that we're using and that we're playing with, uh, they're usually, um, the, the climate models are usually too cold. So they're not hot enough. And the scenarios are also not giving us a true picture. So there's a lot of uh, false hopes that we still can turn it around, um, but we're not even using the, from a climate model perspective and what sea level rise model perspective, the, the, the true estimates. Just to show you this for Alaska quickly. Um, I mean, the global forecast might be 2.5 degrees Celsius increase worldwide in hundred years. Um, in Alaska, we see already much more than that. And the, the official estimates I sometimes see quoted by some people in 100 years would be 10 or 12 degrees Celsius. I've seen this. Um, there might be more, you know, I mean, there's, there's this open-ended. Does this mean we can, we can burn? Um, I had the discussion with a scientific editor recently, and they would say it's not realistic that we can burn. Well, look at California. I mean, California burns down. Um, so anyway, it's unlimited. That's a bit the the issue in the moment hopefully we can turn around but i yeah let's hope we can do it yeah let's let's hope okay well thank you i know you said you have to go thank you so much for doing this my pleasure yeah nice talking to you stay in touch please hey y'all it's rachel thank you so much for listening so here is where you can find us you can find me on twitter at flying cypress um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. Um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.